0: Today, then, we are trying to kind of wrap things up a bit to finish off, and it's going to be maybe a slightly random collection of things, but all I hope very worthwhile and very purposeful. We're going to tackle firstly one question that's come up during the series, then we're going to look at one really important thing we haven't talked about specifically, but it's so important we need to. Uh, And then we're going to look, time dependent, on two difficult passages. We might pick just to do one if we don't have much time, and then we're going to try and do a conclusion of our whole seven weeks and kind of the big question that I posed at the very beginning, uh, nine weeks ago now, because of the breaks we've had, and see if we can kind of wrap that up, having now done all the weeks since. Let's first off start with a question that's been submitted, which is about the chronology of the infancy narratives, i.e. the the timings and the orders of the story of Jesus' birth. And the big difficulty with this is how do we fit together all the movements between Galilee in the north, Judea and Jerusalem and Bethlehem down in the south, and Egypt's off to one side where they go fleeing from Herod. And in particular, what do we do with the fact that many people say the wise men didn't come until Jesus was about two years old? When Herod says that all the young boys in Bethlehem are to be killed to get rid of his new king, he says it's all the two-year-olds and under. And people hear that and they think, well, they must have known then that Jesus was almost two, and so doing that would kind of make sure he was God. But then you think, well, why did they hang around for two years in Bethlehem if they actually lived in Nazareth? And how does it all fit together? So let's just try and piece together the evidence that we've got. This isn't new your notes, by the way, so just bear with me. First of all, it seems that at very least Mary was living in Nazareth, up in Galilee in the north, before Jesus' birth. Luke implies that. It's possible, but not certain, that Joseph also was. We're not told where Joseph is when the angel arrives. And there's a little hint we'll come to a bit later, which suggests they were going to settle once Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Galilee, uh, in Judea, which may mean that David lived I don't know what already Joseph lived in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, Mary lived in Nazareth, and potentially he was just visiting Mary when they're called down for the census. So when the angel comes to Mary, that definitely takes place up in the north in uh, Nazareth, but Matthew doesn't tell us where the angel comes to Joseph. After Mary's heard this news, she travels down the country to Judea to her cousin Elizabeth and spends three months with her there, and then we're told she goes back up north, back up to Nazareth. When we get to the actual birth of Jesus, we know that takes place in Bethlehem. Now Matthew just says this happened in Bethlehem, and Luke actually tells us the reason that Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem was because a census had been called. And so Joseph had to go back to his uh, kind of family home, which was Bethlehem, because he was from the tribe of David. And as we know from our looks at Matthew and Luke, that David link is really important. The shepherds were almost certainly the first visitors to come and visit them in uh, Bethlehem. After eight days, Jesus would have been circumcised and the official naming would have taken place. And then after 40 days, they had to go back to the temple for uh, the purification ceremonies for Mary. So forty days after you have the babies, the woman you'd have to go to the temple for purification. And then Luke tells us that when they'd done all these things which were necessary, they went back to Nazareth. And so the question comes, well when do they go to Egypt? And they have to flee to Egypt because Herod wants to kill Jesus. They can e- that can either come before these temple visits or afterwards. And it's much more likely that it's afterwards. It sounds like they spend quite a while off In Egypt. So it seems they go for the the naming ceremony, they go for the purification of Mary, and then they travel to Egypt when they had this dream. Luke hasn't mentioned this, presumably just because he doesn't see it as relevant. Remember that going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt was really important for Matthew because it's like the story of Israel. Luke isn't so big on Jesus reliving that story, so maybe he just feels it's not quite so relevant to do. And the fact that Herod says is the kids two years and under... He's often said to me, and Jesus was about two, but actually it really doesn't need to. It could easily just be a way of him saying, I want to make sure this really works, we're going to have quite a, a broad time range. And actually it doesn't make sense that either the wise men waited two years to then go to Jesus, or that it took them two years to get from the east to Jerusalem. Both of those are quite implausible. It's much more likely they turned up within months of Jesus being born, and that they visited them. It does seem likely, though, that Jesus and his parents were in Egypt for quite a while. We're told they're there until King Herod died. We know that's 4 BC, so probably a couple of years at least they might have been in Egypt. And then after that, we're told they go back to Nazareth. But here's when we get yet another oddity, which I'd never noticed till today when I looked at that, is that we assume they go from Egypt and they go back to Nazareth because that's where they lived. And that's pretty much what Luke tells us. But Matthew says, actually, they're intending to settle in Judea. But when uh, they knew that Herod's son was ruling, God sent a dream and said, actually, this isn't a safe place to be. And Matthew tells us that's actually why they settled in Nazareth, which is why I think it's likely that Joseph did live in Bethlehem. And so he assumed his wife would come and live with him and they'd make their family home there. But actually, when the time came, God said, no, you have to go up to Galilee, which is safer. And also, as Matthew tells us, the Messiah was going to be a Nazarene from Galilee. So actually, it was also part of God's plan. So I think, to answer that question, that that is how it all fits together, that in between that temple uh, cleansing, or the cleansing of Mary in the temple, and the return to uh, Nazareth comes the Egypt episode, which Luke has even not known about, which is quite plausible. He probably didn't know Matthew's stories about the birth of Jesus, so he may just have not known about it, so not put it in. We may have known, but actually thought, this isn't very relevant, taking up extra words, I don't need it, I'm going to put it to one side. Any questions on that? Did that answer (laughs) the question? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's interesting that Mary goes to her cousin, who's in the hill country of Judea. The hill country of Judea is kind of to the east of um, Jerusalem and such like. So I, I was struck by that, but maybe she's got family links down there Maybe that's how she knows. And also, I mean, Israel is the size of Wales. It's not big. So you can walk it in not very long at all. Um, and I guess a culture as it was, you would have known a lot of people, probably, yeah. I imagine. Let's turn to our notes for today, then. The first thing I want to talk about is a really important thing which we haven't addressed directly, which is the title or the term, Son of Man, which is, as soon as you start reading the Gospels, any of the four Gospels, actually, you soon realise he's used a lot, and yet might not to us be very obvious what it means. It occurs loads of times in the New Testament, 86 times, and the vast majority, I think all but four of these, occur within the Gospels, an awful lot of them in the Synoptics, but also a few in John's Gospel. And it's almost always on the lips of Jesus, and never anybody else. There's only one time when it's used by anyone other than Jesus, and that's when a crowd basically repeat what Jesus has said. So Jesus uses it himself, and yet other people don't seem to use it. And it's a bit of a complex and debated term, so we're going to quickly look at the debates and try and work out what he's actually meant to mean to us. Some people think Jesus was actually talking about someone else. This son of man, it's a third person, it's an other person. That now, rightly, I think, has been largely pushed out. People don't tend to think that now. But some people say, well, actually, the, the Aramaic phrase behind it can just be a way of talking about a human person in general. A son of man is just a son of a human, which is another human. And so Psalm 8, you get the idea that humans can be described as sons of men because they're of a like, uh, liked and a type. It has been argued it could be a way of saying I. So when Jesus says you know, the son of man has no place to, lead, uh, to rest his head, he could just be saying I have no place to rest my head. But then more recent scholarship has said actually that's not quite what that uh, kind of idiom means. What maybe it does mean is it refers to a specific type of person. So Jesus could be saying, well, types of people like this, this is the case for them. And there are some places where quite a generic sense like that actually might make sense. The example I've using in your notes is Mark 2.10. This is the end of the story of the healing of the paralytic who's being uh, dropped down through the roof into where Jesus is. And Jesus says to the people, he does this, he heals the man, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now he's clearly talking about himself, because he's saying he's going to do the healing, and he's the one who's going to forgive sins. But there's nothing in the context to suggest it it needs to mean much more than a person like him. And it may actually be Jesus saying, I'm human, I'm a son of man, but I'm also divine, because I'm the one here who is forgiving sins. But even though there are some cases where it can just mean kind of generically me or generically a person like me, there are definitely places where that doesn't uh, say enough. And there are definitely places, quite a lot of them, where when Jesus uses the term son of man about himself, he's alluding to the book of Daniel. He's alluding to an important prophecy in Daniel 7.13. Daniel 7 is a chapter where uh, Daniel has this vision of four beasts who come in succession of each other. And we're told that these beasts represent different kingdoms that are going to come and are going to oppress uh, God's people. And then during this vision, Daniel then sees the Ancient of Days, God sat upon his throne. And he sees, as he puts it, one like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days, coming up to him. And when this one like a son of man reaches God, the Ancient of Days, he's giving authority and dominion over an eternal kingdom so it seems that Jesus is associating himself with that figure particularly quite often when he's using this term, Son of Man. Some people, important to note, have said, actually in Daniel, it doesn't mean an individual person, it means all of God's people. Because there's a place later in the chapter where the same thing is said about the saints of the Most High, that's God's people, as is said about this Son of Man. But it actually makes more sense to say this Son of Man is kind of the leader of the saints of the Most High, and in some ways they're representative but that he is different, and this is a special role. And that fits nicely with the message of the Gospels, that Jesus very much is uh, you know, the key figure, but also in many ways is representative for God's people as a whole. So Jesus seems to be identifying himself with this figure from Daniel. And the fact that he always says the son of man, whereas most references, and certainly in Daniel, it's a son of man, Maybe Jesus is actually saying, I am the Son of Man, I am, i.e. I am the one who is mentioned in uh, Daniel. That could be a deliberate pointing to that. And it's not really clear whether the Jews in the time of Jesus already understood Son of Man as a messianic title, if they heard that and immediately thought, oh, this is God's promised deliverer. There's some evidence in a text called 1 Enoch, but we're not quite sure if that is from just before the time of Jesus or just after. So it's just after It doesn't really serve as the same sort of evidence. And the very fact that Jesus can often call himself Son of Man and yet people don't respond to that. People respond to what Jesus claims about himself because he's the Son of Man. People don't get worked up about the fact he calls himself Son of Man. We suggest that people didn't instinctively link the Son of Man and a Messiah figure. And yet there's also some link between them, just to make it even more confusing, because Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man immediately after Peter identifies himself as the Messiah. So maybe it was a kind of partially messianic uh, term, but didn't carry all the things about violent expectation that words like Christ or words like Messiah did. Why then do we find Jesus so often calling himself the Son of Man, and yet no one else in the gospel seems to do so? And more importantly, why does Jesus not also call himself the Christ, and also call himself the Son of God? He does very occasionally but almost always he calls himself the Son of Man. The best explanation here links right back, if you remember, to Mark's Gospel and to what we call the Messianic secret, which is the idea that Jesus deliberately tells people not to spread around the news of who he is until later in the story because he knows people have wrong ideas about what the Christ and the Son of God is going to be like. They know when they hear Christ, Son of God, they're thinking of a warrior who comes, who kills the Romans, but that wasn't the path he was going to take. So maybe he uses Son of Man as a way of identifying himself as someone special, someone hugely significant in God's plans, the one who's going to have the authority of God's kingdom, but actually in a way which doesn't make people think, let's join his army, let's overthrow the Romans with him. It seems that he's deliberately using it to avoid misunderstandings which might get in the way. And these Son of Man sayings, you'll find some of them, not all of them, but maybe quite a lot, are linked to the idea of Jesus' suffering. So each of those passion predictions that we find in all three of the synoptics where Jesus tells of his suffering, his death, his resurrection is going to come, they're always the Son of Man is going to suffer. That's always the link. And so people have gone, well, why link the Son of Man and suffering? Because in Daniel 7, the Son of Man doesn't actually suffer. But what is interesting is that God's people, the saints of the Most High, do suffer in Daniel. And as I said earlier, there is a clear link uh, between the Son of Man in Daniel, and God's people in Daniel. So maybe the idea that God's people would suffer and that Jesus is a representative of that people as the Son of Man is the reason why this idea of him as Son of Man can be combined with ideas that he is going to suffer. And then the final really interesting thing about this term is that we find it all the time on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels, and yet we find it barely ever in the New Testament. Jesus is confessed as Christ, Confessed as Lord, but never confessed as the Son of Man in the early church, both in the New Testament or beyond. Now, on the one hand, this is actually really good evidence that this is how Jesus talked about himself. If this isn't how Jesus talked about himself, it makes no sense that people would choose to put these words on his lips when no one else was saying it around him, when it didn't seem very important to people. So, this certainly was the way Jesus talked about himself. And it seems, I guess, that the early church saw more significance or found it more easy to use the terms Christ, to use the terms uh, Lord to refer to Jesus, rather than the term Son of Man. But the ideas kind of encompassed of Jesus' coming, of being given all the authority by God, very much are prominent in the New Testament, particularly somewhere like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that all authority is being given to Jesus until all enemies are placed under his feet. And at that point, he will give all authority over to God the Father. And even, Paul tells us, the Son will be, in some sense, in submission to the Father. So they seem to have not used the term, but very much have understood what it says about Jesus, and that Jesus now has ascended to be the Father, being given all authority and dominion. And if we get to um, the second of our tricky passages there, which you might not, it's very important there as well. And you'll see there how the Son of Man and how the Daniel passage feeds into that. That then is one thing I wanted to make sure we didn't miss in our time together. Let's now turn to the tricky passages. Let's start with the first one, which you may have had a look in our activities, this passage from Luke, where, to our great surprise, at the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples to go off, and if they haven't got one, to go and buy a sword. And yet, in this Gospel, Jesus has said... Then his followers are to love their enemies, that they are to bless and pray for those who curse or abuse them, and that they're to offer their other cheek to one who hits them on their uh, other cheek, their first cheek. To make things even more confusing, the disciples do get swords. They do use swords at the arrests, and when they do, Jesus tells them off, and he heals the guy whose ear they chop off with these swords. So the big question comes, how is it that we are meant to understand this command of Jesus? Why even does he say it, and does it actually have any significance for us? So let's just quickly open up the floor. Did anyone come up with any clever ideas of how we might solve this? Why might Jesus say this to his disciples at the Last Supper? No idea too stupid. It's a safe place. No idea here. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, so it could be a kind of metaphorical thing You know, it's, it's not been the time of the sword but now it's the time of the sword, it's a dangerous time and that is one of the two really common views about this passage, so really good, that's a good possibility, anything else anyone thought? Was it just because the next, you know, next occurrence is betrayal and then, or was it, was it just beyond? Armed? Be armed. I guess the question mark is would Jesus want them to be armed given what he said, if you're to turn some people say, it's for, some people say that, it's, it's for self defence they say But my response would be, why do you need a sword for self-defence when when someone slaps you in the cheek, you're going to turn and give them the other cheek? So it doesn't quite work out. Sorry? Yeah, so Jesus takes it quite seriously. He says, get rid of anything. This is kind of the most important bit. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which works nicely. This sword works for us. Yeah. Maybe it wouldn't work so well for them there, because then and you can therefore understand their confusion when they use the sword and they get told off. What's wrong, Jesus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely a time of change. Yeah, it's a very similar. To, uh, Paul's yes, yeah, kind of metaphorical, amount change. Well, before I give you my answer, I have to come clean and say I wrote my undergrad dissertation on this. So I spent a whole year trying to work out why does Jesus say this? And so <laughs> I'm quite wedded to my view. So we'll see if I convince you tonight. Uh, and if not, you can tell me why and we'll have a little debate. There are two really common solutions to this, one of which we've hit on really well, fantastic, which is that this is a metaphorical statement. You're meant to hear this and get all times are changing, it's no longer going to be peaceful, there's going to be opposition, and we need to be ready for that. On that reading, it's metaphorical, and they should kind of know Jesus doesn't really mean get a sword because of what he said earlier. I don't think this works. I just ask, why would Jesus use a metaphor about equipping themselves to use violence against violence? He's already told them not to respond to violence with violence. I think a more uh, reasonable metaphor would have been to say, get some armour. He could have said, no, get some armour, as in get something to protect your body, not as a, a defensive, active weapon, but as something to protect you. That might have more communicated metaphorically, I think, situations are going to change, you're going to need protection from opposition, and that's going to come. The second common view, which basically comes up because people don't like the first view, is that Jesus tells them to get swords in order that they would be the transgressors who are mentioned in this quote from Isaiah. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, 12. He gives the sword command, and he says the reason for the sword command is because this prophecy about Jesus being numbered with the transgressors must be fulfilled. So some people say Jesus is giving them swords so that they will be transgressors, so that he will be numbered with the transgressors to kind of make the prophecy um, come together. That's a minority view compared to the first one, but has been argued. I also don't think this works, though. There's no point in any of the Gospels where the disciples are identified as the transgressors that Isaiah talks about. It's much more likely that uh, the reference is to the two criminals who are crucified either side of Jesus, and just to the general fact that Jesus suffers a criminal, criminal's death, and so is associated with criminals. It also doesn't work because the opposition that comes is specifically to Jesus. They don't try to arrest his disciples. They don't try to do anything to them, really. They don't care that they run off. And so the authorities don't seem to recognise Jesus' disciples as transgressors anyway. So if neither of the two common solutions suggested by uh, people who look at this work, we need to start asking some questions to find an answer. And I'm going to try and almost walk you through my thought process as I come to this and think, oh, what does this mean? So you can see in action how you might tackle a question like this. And really, it's a journey of questions. We talked about questions in session two. But the best way often to read the Bible when it's complicated is just to keep asking it questions. When you get confused and stuck by something, you ask it a question, and that question will lead you to another question. You kind of go on this journey towards finding out what it means through asking questions. So that's what we're going to do now. The first question, what does it say and what's going on in the immediate context? Okay, this is one little phrase in a paragraph of Jesus' speech. So we need to look at the details and get, uh, pull them out. Jesus is clearly talking about a time of change. He says, when I sent you out previously, but now you're to do this. There's a previous time and now there's a different time. There's clearly change in the context that's coming. When he talks about the past context, he's talking about a missionary time, when he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God in the towns and villages. It was about a missionary journey. That suggests that what he says about the future is likely, at least, to also be about a missionary context, about what happens when you're going out on mission. Um, the reason given for this change in situation, that quote from Isaiah, is most likely about Jesus' death. So we know that there's a change coming. And somehow it's linked to Jesus' death. Notice the disciples seem to already have swords on them. This is a really important one. He says, if you haven't got swords, you need to go and buy them. And they say, they say, look, here are two swords we happen to have on us. That's really, really important. A little detail. Why did they already have swords? People who've been taught to turn the other cheek, to pray for their enemies, to bless those who curse them. Why did they already have swords? That's going to be really important. And then what about Jesus' uh, response? They produce these two swords, and Jesus just goes, it is enough. Now, he can't mean the two swords are sufficient, because there's two of them. He should say, they are enough. And Jesus, normally his grammar is quite good, so he should say, they are enough. Likewise, he's not saying, enough, stop it, because he doesn't just say enough. He says, it is enough. There's an ambiguity about what he even means. Maybe there's a deliberate ambiguity. Maybe for Jesus, the story doesn't end there. So that's what we get if we ask what's going on in the immediate context. And it's almost like now we've got all these funny observations, and we have to work to find a solution which accounts for all of them. So they all make sense and fit into something, and that's the most likely solution. So the best thing we can do next is to start asking about our different contexts. Remember, session two, reading the Bible, or session one, was asking questions and asking about context. So what about the historical context? Is there anything in the historical context of Jesus' day and Judaism of Jesus' day that might link to ideas of swords, of violence, and might be relevant to what's going to happen in the cross and beyond? Well, the answer is yes, definitely. We know, week two, there were lots of Jews who were expecting the Messiah to come and to be a violent figure who would kill the Romans and there'd be a proper bloodbath, and then they'd take back Jerusalem for the Jews to rule themselves. So we know that violence and weapons fit in with contemporary expectation, what people thought was going to be happen. And so we might think, okay, maybe the sword command is somehow related to these expectations of the Messiah being violent and using violence when we come. So that's the historical context. Then we might say, what about the scriptural context and the Lucan context? If we think about the gospel of Luke as a whole, does he engage with any ideas of violent messiahship of the kingdom of God coming through that sort of violence. But again, the answer is a big, clear yes. Luke is actually unique among the Gospels at mentioning uh, violent revolutionaries. He talks about the fact that some Galileans had been killed by Pilate, that their blood had been mixed with um, sacrifices. These were probably violent revolutionaries killed by the Roman prefect uh, Pilate uh, kind of to suppress the revolution. He talks about Barabbas as one who is being involved in a revolution and has committed murder, so it's a violent revolution. And when we go to Acts, we have mention of um, Theudas and Judas the Galilean, and also an Egyptian rebel. So Luke's aware that there were these violent rebels at the time of Jesus, and he puts puts them in front of us, in a sense, to compare them with Jesus. But we also know, if you think back to our session in Luke's Gospel, Now, one of Luke's purposes is to show the Romans that Jesus isn't a violent revolutionary. There's that apologetic idea of showing Romans actually Jesus is safe and that Christians aren't trying to um, overthrow you and get in the way. We have things particularly like Jesus' innocence in the passion narrative. Remember, three times Pilate says, no, this guy is innocent. Remember, the centurion who stands by the cross doesn't say this is the son of God. He says, surely this man is innocent. Time after time, we're reminded Jesus isn't a violent revolutionary. He's compared with Barabbas, who was, but got released, but actually meant to see that Jesus is the innocent one. He is not coming as a violent revolutionary. And then if we look at the context just before these paragraphs, we find Peter being told that he's going to deny Jesus. And he gets all worked up and he says, No, Jesus, I will go to prison and I will die with you before I um, uh, abandon you, before I deny you. And to declare, I'll go to prison with you, I'll die with you, is kind of classic language of a violent revolutionary. Peter's expecting a fight, Peter's expecting a battle, Peter Peter is expecting the possibility that he might die because he's so up for whatever is coming for them. And of course, the fact that they had these swords in their pockets, seemingly, the fact they used the swords at the arrest also suggests that the disciples are still thinking in violent terms. Even though Jesus has tried to teach them The disciples have weapons ready. The disciples respond with violence when the Romans come for Jesus. And if we even look at the structure of the teaching that Jesus gives at the Last Supper in Luke, there's yet more evidence. There are four different parts of teaching. And parts one and two, sorry, one and three, and two and four correspond to each other. So in part one and part two, they both talk about individuals. There's the prophecy of the... um, Uh, betraying by Judas, and then of the denials by Peter, both about individuals that night. In the second section, it's about all of the disciples, and it's when they're asking about how they can get on the top, and Jesus says they're not to rule each other like the nation's rulers rule them, but to be servants towards each other. It's addressing all the disciples, and it's about a misunderstanding they're still holding. The fourth section is the one we're looking at, And again, this involves all the disciples. He's talking to all the disciples. They corporately say, look, Jesus, we've got two swords between us. And again, I think there's something about misunderstanding here. They're parallel. So we're expecting, if it's all the disciples, there's going to be something about misunderstanding Jesus' teaching, misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom. So with all of those things in mind, that we know Jesus has tried to teach them not to use violence, we know they are still using violence, we know Jesus is probably addressing Uh, a misunderstanding going on, we can come back to our passage and we can start to ask again what explanation makes sense of the fact that Jesus commands his followers to buy a sword. The commands can't be literal and intended to be followed in kind of perfect measure because it completely contradicts everything Jesus has been teaching them. It completely contradicts what Luke has been showing us about Jesus. It also can't be uh, metaphorical. Because I said earlier, it just wouldn't communicate what Jesus wants it to. It would sound like they need to respond with violence. The idea of armour would much better communicate the idea that the times are changing. It's not literal. It's not metaphorical. It doesn't leave many options for us, really. What then is the sense? Here's what I think is going on. I think that Jesus is testing the disciples. I think that when Jesus says this, He knows he's been teaching them to turn the other cheek, to bless their enemies and those who curse them. He says this to test if they've really got it yet. And he wants them to say, but Jesus, you've taught us to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse us. And the disciples completely fail the test. They produce swords rather than objecting to what's going on. And this makes really good sense of the command because it gives the command its full force. It's literal, it's not metaphorical. Jesus means what he says, but it doesn't contradict to what Jesus has already taught. Because even though it's a real command, Jesus means what he says, they're not meant to actually do it. Because before they do it, they're meant to say, but Jesus, you've told us not to do that sort of thing. And so this also helps us explain Jesus' response. Remember, it is enough didn't make sense. It didn't mean the two swords. It didn't mean stop talking. Jesus seems to leave things deliberately open-ended. He doesn't tell them whether he is happy or not about what they're doing. He just completely leaves it. And so you can kind of imagine them thinking, well, we've got the swords, is that good, is that not? I'm not sure if he sounded happy or not. And kind of waiting to see how things pan out. And that's when we jump across and we cut to the arrest which takes place in the garden later that night. Again, the theme of violent revolution is right there in the context. When the people come to Jesus, he says, have you come out to me? Uh, come out as against a robber. Or We could translate that as a violent revolutionary uh, with clubs, Was he say? with swords and with clubs. He's saying, you guys coming to me, you're treating me like a violent revolutionary. That idea is right there in the context. That's what they're kind of uh, thinking about Jesus. And the disciples display their misunderstanding because they get out their swords, they chop off the ear of uh, the high priest's servant. But Jesus steps in, he tells them off And he heals the ear. The disciples have shown their failure to understand Jesus' teaching. But Jesus, in a very powerful, very clear, very real-life way, has shown them in action what they should actually do. He's shown them actually they shouldn't be using swords. Actually, their weapons are the coming of the kingdom, which happens through things like praying for sick people to be healed. Jesus comes with a completely different perspective. At the Last Supper, the disciples failed the test. And Jesus left the conversation open-ended. Who knows quite what he meant when he said it is enough? Because he knew that it would be much more powerful to show them the right way later than to tell them the right way. It's all very well saying, Well, oh, don't you know hit people with a sword when they attack you. It's a lot harder to actually do that when you're being arrested by the Romans who might crucify you. Jesus knew it's much more powerful to wait and to correct them later on. And if we keep asking our questions, we might notice we have the sword episode. We have the arrest of Jesus, and smack-bang in the middle is Luke's account of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, or the Mount of Olives, as um, Luke calls it. And so we're in our right to ask you another question. Is there any relevance to the fact that these two sword stories bookend, they kind of come either side of the, the um, prayer in the garden? It might be that they're not, which would be fine, but actually it's worth asking. And I think, if we look at it, there is. If you think back to our session on Luke's Gospel, When we looked at the Passion narrative, we noticed that Luke has edited the story of Jesus praying in the garden to make the focus fall on the importance of prayer rather than on Jesus being abandoned. Mark's all about Jesus being abandoned and he comes and goes three times and every time the disciples are sleeping and Jesus is sorrowful. In Luke... He doesn't come and go three times. He goes once and he comes back. Only in Luke does he tell them to pray. In Luke, the whole story ends by telling them you should have been praying that you don't come into temptation. I think Jesus and Luke together are trying to show us violence isn't the way, but prayer is. And this story um, of the prayer in the garden ends with the saying, or Jesus saying, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And immediately at that point, the arresting party uh, arrive. It's almost as if that story isn't ended. They're flowing into each other. So we're meant to interpret the story of the arrest in light of what Jesus is still saying as they arrive, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so we look at the arrest and we ask, well, who does and doesn't enter into temptation? Well, Jesus doesn't. He sticks with his policy of uh, non-retaliation, of peace, of the way the kingdom of God really is. He, in the garden, had prayed. And so he keeps to God's uh, kind of manifesto and way of doing things. The disciples panic, they chop off the guy's ear, they get violent. The disciples fall in temptation because they had not prayed in the garden. We're meant to see that it's prayer, which is the true weapon in the fighting, as it were, of God's kingdom, not these swords, not any physical weapon that comes. Luke has combined the sword episodes with the story of the garden and has played up the theme of prayer in the garden to juxtaposition them, to place them next to each other, that we might see the importance of prayer rather than of violence and of weapons. And this actually fits the picture we find in the book of Acts really well. So another question we could now ask is, well, I think this is right. Does this fit with what else the author says? Does this make sense in the wider context? And absolutely it does. In Acts, the disciples never use violence to extend God's kingdom, but they do often pray for the extension of God's purposes. When something goes wrong, they don't get their swords out. They get on their knees and they start praying. And that's a really a big difference, you know, uh, Acts 3, for example, or Acts 4, when Peter and John are arrested and the people, um, uh, the disciples get together and pray about it, it's probably not very long, it's just after Pentecost, which is 40 days after, um, which is after Jesus' returns to be the Father, this is probably less than a year from when they were using swords in the garden, and yet somehow they know the solution here is not to go out to pick up my sword and to chop up someone's ear, the solution is to get on my knees and pray. Something dramatic must have happened to change people who were walking around with swords to people who choose to pray instead of get violent. I think this failed test and that scene where Jesus teaches them at the arrest by healing the man and rebuking their actions is the thing that did that. I think that is the strategy that Jesus used to teach them this really important lesson. And wonderfully, by the time we get to Acts, we find that they had actually learned it. So that is how I think... That should be solved. I'm not completely alone. There's one other person who's published something saying that it's a test. I don't think anyone else has put the bits together like that. Normally that's not a good thing. I've probably told you before, if you think you've found something no one else has found, that's not a good thing. Um, It's a bit different in scholarship like that. Sorry? A guy called somebody stoner in a book I had to buy from America because I couldn't find it anywhere. in a random paper in a book about peace. <laughs> so you're getting in contact with your uh, No, maybe I should. Maybe I should. Yeah, yeah. Don't I've developed his idea. <laughs> okay, how are we doing for time? We will I will try and give a potted summary off notes of the next section so that we do the conclusion properly. The other passage, which you can read at home and look at the notes in detail, is a discourse of Jesus, so teaching of Jesus that comes just before the Passion narrative kicks off. It comes in Matthew, Mark and Luke, and it's um, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, because it takes place in the Mount of Olives. And it's when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the Temple and or his return. It's a passage which is very confusing, a passage which has been misused and misread, and has been used to defend ideas like the rapture and tribulation and Antichrist and timetables of Jesus is coming back on this day and all sorts of things. People say it's all about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Other people say it's all about the return of Jesus at the end of time. And still yet more people say, well, it's kind of both of the two mixed together, sometimes overlapping, sometimes different. So it's quite confusing. But again, questions are really helpful. There's two questions we want to ask. What is Jesus actually talking about? And then what is the purpose of the teaching? And let me give you my answer to those two questions, and then you can look in more detail later. What is Jesus talking about? He is almost certainly talking about both the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and also his return uh, at the end of time. It all starts with the disciples looking at the temple and saying, isn't it amazing, this huge building? It was like a sixth of the city of Jerusalem was the temple complex. And Jesus goes, it's amazing, but actually not one stone is going to be left on top of it. So it definitely starts with something about the temple being destroyed But then disciples want to know when this is going to happen. They say, well, when is it going to be? And what are the signs that this is going to take place? And Matthew shows us that they think the temple is going to be destroyed at the same time that Jesus will return and this present age will end, bringing in the new creation and um, the new age. And that's why it's so confusing to work out when is Jesus talking about 70 AD and when is Jesus talking about the ends of the ages. But I think what he's doing is the whole way through he's talking about the end of the age. He's answering the question, when will he return? And all of this present age will be wrapped up and the new age will come. But he also talks about 70 AD because that is one of the signs of which there are many in this chapter that that time is coming. So Jesus starts with a number of signs. He says things like um, false teachers and false Christs are going to come. He talks about uh, wars and rumours of wars. He talks about kingdoms being against each other but he says all of these aren't actually the end. They're just the birth pains. They're just the very beginning of it. And then he says that's the world context. For God's people, there's going to be persecution. They're going to be thrown in front of rulers and uh, councils and different things. And they're going to be hated, he says, even by everyone for his name's sake. All of this, he says, are signs that the birth pains are starting, that Jesus is coming back. And then he starts talking about the abomination of desolation. This is an allusion to Daniel. And in context of Daniel, it's about the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC, which we looked at in session two, when in between the two testaments, this um, Syrian ruler comes, sacrifices a pig right in the center of the temple, completely profanes what should be holy. And it becomes this symbolic way of describing terrible things happen, which profane God's holy place. And he's saying, when you see that happen, something's going to happen, it's time to get out of Jerusalem. So that's when he talks about the destruction of the temple. And he warns them it's going to be really terrible there to flee at that time. But actually, even that isn't the end. Even that is just a sign of the times progressing. Uh, and then chapter verse 24 is a really important point. He's talked about all these different signs, which all show it is the end of the ages. But then he changes. But in those days after that tribulation, he says... So there comes a definite point after all of that when there's some cosmic things that happen and most importantly, verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Remember we looked at the Son of Man and that vision of Daniel or in Daniel where the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days and receives all uh, power and authority to him. Here Jesus is saying that he is going to come in the opposite direction, come to earth on the clouds, on the clouds is about divine presence. He's saying that as he comes, God is coming. And it's you know, alluding to this um, prophecy in Daniel, saying that he's going to come. This is definitely about the second coming. He then uses, in verse 28, the horticultural metaphor of the fig tree to say that when these signs take place, you know that the time is near. Because in Palestine, a hot place out Palestine, as soon as a fig leaf starts to come into, or starts to grow, you know that summer is literally just around the corner. And he's saying in the same way, these signs are uh, kind of demonstrations of the fact that Jesus himself is, as it were, just around the corner. And here's where we reach perhaps the hardest verse of the discourse, one of the hardest verses in the Gospels, where Jesus says that actually this generation are not going to pass away until all of these things take place. And lots of people read that and think, this generation, so the people with Jesus, that's 30, 40 years more, are are still going to be alive when Jesus returns. And they think, oh, Jesus hasn't returned 2,000 years later. And lots of people, lots of uh, sceptical scholars, think Jesus was wrong, basically. They say, look, there's a really clear example where Jesus got it wrong. But actually, we have to look really carefully at the details of what Jesus says there's two bits, this generation we have to look at. Some people say, well, we shouldn't translate it as generation, we should translate it as race. And so Jesus is saying that the Jewish race will not pass away before he returns. And that, to be frank, is just clutching at straws. This is a very odd phrase to uh, say. It's a very, very odd way to translate the word in that context. So certainly Jesus is talking about the people with him. He's saying within 40, uh, 50 maybe years, a generation these things are going to take place. So then the question becomes, what are all these things? Many think it's about Jesus' return. He's just talked about his return. But actually, we have to look really carefully at what Jesus says in the previous verse. So verse 29, Jesus says, So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he he is near at the very gates. And then he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In verse 29 these things take place when Jesus is near at the very gates. That means that these things cannot include the return of Jesus, because they are the things that come before the return of Jesus. So when Jesus says these things are all going to take place in this generation's last lifetime, he's saying all these signs which say the, uh, that he is about to return, that he's soon to return, will take place before this generation dies off. And that's true. Once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, There's persecution, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's kingdoms up against each other. The gospel has reached Rome and all the known world, basically, by that point. Every sign Jesus has said has been fulfilled by that point. Which basically means Jesus could return any time between 70 AD and any time now. And you kind of think, Jesus, they asked for a time. That's not really a time. And that's basically exactly how Jesus ends the discourse. Having given a long answer to Jesus, when are you coming back and what's the sign? He says, here's all the signs. And then he says, none of them help you to tell me, t- help you to know when I'm coming back. He says, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He says, even he, Jesus, doesn't know actually when he's coming back. They ask the question, when? He gives them the answer, anytime. But he makes the purpose very different. He puts in this little kind of half parable-like statement where he says, this is like a man who goes on a journey. And he puts his gatekeeper uh, or doorkeeper on the door and he says, stay awake. He says, I don't know when I'm coming back, but you're going to need to be awake when I come. And so the guy goes off and the doorkeeper stays awake because he's alert. He knows it could happen at any point. It affects the way he does his job. It affects the way he lives. So Jesus is saying in the same way, he could come back literally any time between 70 AD and the rest of AD history. Why does he tell us that? It's not so we can try and work at a timetable, which is impossible. It's not so we can have great fun trying to speculate about or maybe there'll be a tribulation and a rapture and all this and the other. Actually, it's so we can make sure that we are being alert and ready, that we are living in such a way that when Jesus suddenly appears, as one day he will, we are ready. And this is confirmed if you look at Matthew. He adds a whole chapter of parables which stress this. The parable of the ten virgins, which is about making sure you are really prepared. You might look at externally, like all the others, but actually in this parable, half of them weren't ready and missed out on entering the marriage feast. The parable of the talents, when it's God's giving or the, the owner has given people things to use, and he wants them to invest them and to get things out of them. Jesus is saying, there's this time. Jesus can return any time, so use the resources he's given you well. Invest them as he'd want you to. And then the kind of half parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus is saying there will be a judgment according to works, and judgment will be according to works, but the works are different because sheep and goats do different things. And Jesus is saying, Jesus could come at any point, therefore you need to make sure that your works show you to be a sheep, not to be a goat. So it's not easy to understand, and hopefully if we read through the the notes in more detail, it will fall into place a little bit more, but it is really important, actually because there's a real purpose why Jesus gave that teaching. And throughout most of Christian history, and certainly hugely in the New Testament, the return of Jesus is kind of right in the forefront of people's minds. It hugely affects how people live. And because we now live in an age when we're very divorced from death, death is uh, not something we come into contact with very often directly. We don't think about it, and so we don't think about the future. We don't think about Jesus' return. But actually it's so important that we understand what Jesus said, that we really do let what we know is coming in the future affect the way we live in the present now let me then final thing do a final conclusion to our whole seven weeks if you think right back to session one the last thing is session one we asked why are there four gospels we could easily just have had one but instead we find that in the bible there are four why is that and i if you remember showed you four different pictures of winston churchill and i said that each of these different pictures gives us a different perspective on the same man. It's the same person, the same life story, but we're learning different things from each different uh, picture or type of picture and the situation in those pictures. And I think and hope that's what we found as we have looked individually at each of the Gospels. Each one tells us about the same man. Each one tells us effectively really the same story, but actually they're showing us all the many different levels of it that one Gospel alone could not do. Four complementary Gospels that we might get a fuller, bigger picture of Jesus, his mission, and our response. We looked at Mark's Gospel as the first one, We found that Mark crafts his Gospel, starting by declaring Jesus to be the Christ and the Son of God. And he demonstrates the truth of that through all these amazing miracles and casting out of demons and all the fast-paced things that Jesus does in the first half of Mark's Gospel. But then we saw that as soon as someone realises who he is, Jesus has to start explaining who he is. And how the whole second thing becomes, to be the Christ and Son of God means for Jesus to suffer. And we saw that the first time a human says, this Jesus is the Son of God, is at the cross. And it's only as Jesus dies that we truly understand what it means for him to be the Son of God. We also saw that Mark uses that to teach us that if we want to follow Jesus and be his disciples, that means following him on the way of discipleship, which is the path of suffering Taking up our crosses, dying to ourselves, losing our lives in order that we might truly save them. Matthew, then we found, is written a gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is the obedient Son of God, who comes as the completion of the Old Testament story, everything that came before, and all the promises found in it. Jesus is the one who relives the history of God's Old Testament Son, Israel, but whereas Israel failed and got things wrong, Jesus succeeds and lives out their mission perfectly. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is also a teacher. He teaches the people how to follow him by by being obedient sons of God and he teaches the people how to go and tell others about him in order that others also might become obedient sons of God. Luke's gospel is the story of Jesus as the one who comes to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the one who's anointed by God's spirit as the Christ to bring the kingdom of God, often under the language of salvation, one of Luke's key themes, and it comes especially to those who are the uh, lost who are ready to respond and ready to recognise their need for it. But Jesus' mission isn't one of violence against foreign powers, as many expected, but of quiet suffering as an innocent victim who doesn't pose a direct physical effect to the Romans at all. And for Luke, the Gospel is just the start because he will also give us acts where he talks about the continuing work of Jesus in the life of the early church and even beyond. And then finally, John's Gospel is the most unique gospel in the New Testament, as we saw, where Jesus is presented as the divine word who comes down from heaven to be on earth among his people, but the one who is rejected by his people. He's the worker of signs which point to his identity, is the one who's come to fulfill Jewish expectations. He's the one, the only one, who can apply to himself God's self-designation of I am, and the one who invites all people to believe in him in order to have eternal life and to become children of God. And in both example and in word, in John's Gospel, Jesus is the one who shows us that as his people, we are to be people who love each other and reflect love in the way he has to us, to such an extent that other people will recognise our identity as his by our love for each other. And in John, Jesus is the one who is lifted up on a cross, ironically being lifted up, being glorified and exalted, as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, who will draw all people to himself, because as he dies, he can cry out, it is finished. We have four Gospels, but one Jesus and one story. And yet there's more that could be said about Jesus, as John's Gospel tells us, than could be written in all the books that might fill the world completely. This, I hope, isn't the end for you. We've kind of got maps from what we've done. We've got a toolbox from what we've done. My encouragement and plea to you to get the most out of this is to go away and to do something on the back of this. Read a gospel uh, with your notes and with your kind of the structures that are given to get more detail. Get together in a group or give yourself the challenge of leading a Bible study if people haven't been here. Get a commentary or get one of the books recommended. Do something, actually, to keep this journey that we've been going on going, to take hold of everything we've started to learn and to get more out of it yourself. Thank you so, so much guys. It's been such a privilege. I've loved doing these sessions and so grateful to you all for coming. Please do your feedback forms I'd love to see that. And uh, see you next year, maybe.